welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. There can be no more enduring partnership in all art than that between words and music, and this partnership was particularly potent within the group of composers who were all connected to the city of Leipzig in the middle of the 19th century, at the height of the Romantic movement. The combination of the flowering of German lyric poetry and the musical inheritance from Vienna of Beethoven and Schubert created a unique moment in European musical history in which both men and women played a vital role. And on the show today, we will explore the culture of 19th century romanticism through the songs of both Schumann's, Robert, his wife Clara, both Mendelssohn's, Felix and his sister Fanny, and Johannes Brahms, who somewhat appropriately in this context lacks a female artistic companion. We'll also discuss the influence that this group has had on both art song composition today and our own lives and relationships in the 21st century. Hopefully the partnership between myself and my guest will prove to be just as fruitful as that between words and music. And my partner in song today is the head of postgraduate programmes at the Royal College of Music, an author and broadcaster on romantic song, and just last month was awarded a personal chair of musicology at the Royal College. So for more than one reason, I'm delighted to be able to say... Welcome to the show, Professor Natasha Logas. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful introduction. Yes, and what a wonderful topic we're going to discuss today. Before Leipzig came to be the home of the Schumanns and Felix Mendelssohn, the musical capital of Europe was, of course, Vienna, home to Beethoven and Schubert. So let's bid fond farewell to this jaunty, happy city in the most appropriate way possible, with the six of Schubert's swan songs, Abschied, sung by Werner Gula, accompanied by Christoph Berner. Natasha, what were some of the reasons why the musical centre of gravity shifted 550 kilometres northwards from Vienna to Leipzig after the deaths of Beethoven and Schubert? Oh, I'm going to give a really annoying academic answer and say there are so many centres of gravity. There are so many musical centres, depending on one's perspective. And so for the Viennese, and to this day, Vienna has never stopped being a centre. And I think lots of audience members would agree with that. But you're absolutely right that Leipzig had a, a real moment in the 19th century. And perhaps an important factor in this was the creation of the Leipzig Conservatory in 1840. With Mendelssohn at the helm. And this sort of signals the professionalization of music making in Germany. It had been a largely amateur venture until then. The Vienna Conservatory had existed since 1817, but it was such a shambles. Its finances were a mess. It kept on having to be bailed out. And it only really stabilized when it was um, made a, a state institution in 1909. Whereas Leipzig, from the very start in 1843, that conservatory was like a landmark in German music history. People came from all over the world, from South America, from further east in Europe, and of course, many, many people from Britain to study at the conservatory. So Leipzig began to have that reputation of where you could take music seriously. And of course, the association with Bach, with J.S. Bach, was hugely important because Bach's reputation really shot up in the 19th century. That was the century where people thought about Bach as, as important in his own day he was a great organist but we didn't think of him the way we think about him now so yeah that's just a couple of factors which I think single Leipzig out for its importance. Now Robert Schumann was early in his career perhaps slightly dismissive of the art song as a genre yet in one extraordinary year 1840 now known as his year of song he wrote around 140 songs why do you so embrace song at this time and why was song so appealing to the romantic aesthetic? Robert Schumann is an unbelievably fascinating and complicated man. He'd initially hoped to be a pianist, but I think many of your listeners will know he had to give up that dream because of a dreadful hand injury 
um, that he got by putting a, a, a horrible contraption on his hand to restrict the movement of his fingers. He also, apart from the hand injury, was not terribly consistent when it came to practice. So he might, he might not have made it anyway in a really, really competitive world. When he fell in love with Clara Wieck and he got engaged, he had to show that he would be able to support a family. This was a legal requirement, otherwise he wouldn't be able to marry her. So I think song was the perfect genre for him at the time. Songs were quick to write. You could write four or five in a day and you could earn a lot of money because there was a huge amateur market for song. Um, they also, I think, resonated with how he was feeling, though. He was very, very sensitive to the magic of poetry. To the, to the word. And I think with all of their emotional intensity, with all of their intimacy, they could be both personal and professional works for him. So I think 1840, the year in which he got married, it's no surprise that that was his year of song. They're a way of proving to Clara how much he loved her and a way of proving to Clara's father that he could earn an income. Absolutely, yeah, you got <laughs> it there. <laughs> how did art song influence how men and women related to each other in the 19th century? Is this connected to the relationship between words and music and the relationship between composer and performer? Oh, what a wonderful, complex question that is. Piano and voice were closely associated with women. Singing at the piano was one of the few things that women could do without attracting disapproval. Um, it was considered to be one of those qualities that you had to have if you wanted anyone to marry you. So, you know, it was a sort of performance of your loveliness, let's put it that way, before somebody asked for your hand. And there were many really gifted and able women who stayed amateurs in music history for practical and societal reasons. And had they lived in a different era, they would have probably had pretty stellar careers. Professional singing, of course, involved men and women. This was always the way. But song only gradually got drawn into the world of professional singing through the 19th century. So if we, we start at one end, we can think of Franz Schubert accompanying the operatic baritone Johann Michael Vogel, who was known for his really intense performances of Schubert's song. And he was so important to the promotion of Schubert's song um, in the beginning of the century. And then at the end of the century, we can think of someone like George Henschel, who was another great baritone, but he would accompany himself. Can you imagine? He would sit down and play his own recitals and sing at the piano. So we have a whole range of relationships when it comes to song, men, women, public and private performance. I'm not sure about the word and music link that you were trying to make because some composers wrote their own lyrics to the songs that they set. Some people went for poets who were really famous because they knew that that would help to sell their songs. Some people said, actually, I don't want the poetry to be famous because I want my music to be the most important thing in this world. So, when we look across the broad span of the 19th century, we can find every kind of relationship to music through song. That's probably why I love it so much and I keep coming back to it as a scholar. It's endlessly fascinating. Within the concert context, it was absolutely normal to put songs in a concert. Didn't matter if it was a symphony or a concerto or whatever. You'd finish and then you'd have a couple of songs. And I think even in, even in huge venues, it's amazing, like London's Crystal Palace, you would have two songs or three songs. And I think that that provided a moment of personal connection and intimacy that audiences really valued, even in huge spaces. Because lyric song is about human connection on a very personal level. When you hear somebody sing, you connect to the beauty of the voice, the harmonies, the words which might recall experiences that you've had or, or take you back to a time in your life. So song does a lot of expressive work in every context that we can imagine, I think. Yeah, some of these concert programs might seem unusual today, but they were much approaching the planning of concerts and I think in a much, perhaps a much more creative way than they perhaps do these days. They were highly creative people, so perhaps it might be surprising if they did just present this music in a more prosaic way. Well, it was a much more collaborative act. Um, it, it also operated on a very different financial basis from the one that we're used to nowadays. So every artist who participated in, in a typical concert bore some of the financial risk. And they also then could 
simply propose the repertoire that they wanted to propose. So what you end up with, depending on your perspective, is either a complete mess, a sort of hodgepodge <laughs> of different kinds of music. But from my perspective, I suppose, coming from you know, 30 years in a fairly controlled and well-behaved concert scene that characterizes art music. I really enjoy that sense of anarchy that you get from 19th century concerts. The last minute planning, you can feel them literally on the seat of their pants, rocking up to the concert hall and saying, oh, what are we going to sing? What, let's figure out what we're going to sing. And people would take music with them and pick stuff really at the last minute. And I think the value of that that we might have lost today is the sense of not knowing what you're going to get, which is what makes live performance so uniquely thrilling in comparison with my taking a recording off my shelf or finding something on the internet. I, I relinquish the power of choice. And I say to the artist, you give me what you want. And I think that just makes for a, a magical listening experience today. We do know in the 19th century that audiences didn't necessarily behave terribly well. Um, people arrived late and they left early. They smoked a lot. Um, there was a lot of extraneous noise. So I think, you know, I don't want to over-romanticize what concert life was like in the 19th century. I suspect it was pretty stressful when it came down to it. But I like the idea of collaboration in a concert and the idea that I'm not going to know what I'm going to get. That is what would make me buy a ticket to a concert. So yeah, that's a modern perspective, I guess. Schumann's most famous contribution to song is probably Dichtelieber. What stands out about Dichtelieber to you, Natasha? Oh, it's just so beautiful. That's the short answer. Um, mu musically, it's so spare. There isn't a single extra note in that score and that economy really impresses me so purely from a compositional standpoint poetically the words of Heinrich Heine which Schumann set in that cycle seem to me to show such a profound understanding of what it is like to be in love and to suffer in love which I think I don't know but I think that's probably universal experience I think all of us have one point in our lives where we lay ourselves to that kind of pain and that pain is allied with hope and Heine just gets it he gets it in a really concentrated way and I think also Schumann is the master of what poetry can't say so he's very interested in the preludes the, the, the bit of the piano music before the singer sings the postludes that come after and of course the very long postlude that closes the whole cycle which is basically I think him saying make of this what you want put your own heart and your memory and your life onto this and allow yourself to feel, um, sorry, this is me pretending that Schumann is some kind of profound psychotherapist, which I kind of think he is in music, that he gives us space and time to feel many things that we would normally keep repressed, that we would think, well, what, sorry, I'm a grown-up. I don't do that kind of thing anymore. And I love the fact that he takes me back to a time in my life, which is now many years ago, uh, where I think, yes, I know. I know how that feels, to, to weep with love. I think it's such an important work in that sense. I really can't overstate its importance and its continuing relevance today. And like the great three Schubert cycles, it's much more concentrated, isn't it? Yes, we do have to remember the important point that you made before, which is that concert life was very different. Nobody would have dreamed of performing Schubert's big cycles uh, from start to finish, including Schubert in his day or for much of the century. So that's very much a 20th century construct and not one to which I personally am very wedded anymore. I do find uh, it's difficult to keep that level of concentrated listening, which those long concerts demand. Dichterliebe is perfect. I find, even though I've played it many times and I've heard it many times, that it says what it needs to say in just the right length of time. For me, it works, but I know that's a personal view, and there are many, many people who are very wedded to the 75-minute um, Schubert cycle experience. Well, let's sample a bit of it now. This is the 12th song of the cycle, Am Luchtend in Sommermorgen, in which the poet finds no solace from his sorrow amongst the summer flowers.
That was performed by Ian Bostridge and Julia Drake. I was delighted that you picked this recording in particular, Natasha, and I'm not alone in my admiration for it here at Presto Towers. The tenor Ian Bostridge really exemplifies, both in voice and in image, a young lovelorn poet, doesn't he? Oh, he sounds so, so vulnerable and so boyish. I think, I think the pair of them just absolutely get it right. Uh, not, you know, sometimes I need a different recording, but for today and for this occasion, that felt like the right one. Well, alongside Dichterlieber and the two Liederkreis, Frauenlieber und Leben, A Women's Love and Life, is one of Schumann's most enduring contributions to song, yet Frauenlieber und Leben is perhaps uncomfortable to some modern listeners, describing uniquely female experiences through words and music by men. To use a 21st century term, Natasha, is this 19th century mansplaining? I have to preface my response by saying that no one has to agree with me when it comes to Frauenliebe und Leben. I have heard the passion with which friends of mine and colleagues of mine have defended this music, and I think there's something really genuine there. Uh, I just don't share it. I think that this cycle has profited disproportionately from our obsession with cyclical works. You know, there's just something tidy about something that has one title, and then we sing it. And so these things become important. We program them automatically and perhaps unthinkingly, even when there's so much other music out there, which is so much to me more interesting and rewarding. Um, now, Schumann wrote these songs in the middle of July 1840, two months before he got married. And I'm sure he thought that they would sell well. He had already seen that they'd attracted other settings by other composers and he reviewed them in his magazine very positively. Maybe he was feeling triumphant that the legal objection to his future marriage had been overturned. That happened actually uh, a couple of days before he wrote the cycle. So that was very fresh news. He did write an awful lot of other songs at the same time, which people pay much less attention to because of the sort of power of the cycle. So, you know, I sort of feel reasonably sympathetic to Schumann. He was also deeply inexperienced. He didn't really know anything about women or marriage or motherhood or widowhood or any of it. So fine, he's on the one side. The poet Adalbert von Chamiso, I have slightly less sympathy for. He was a really fascinating and brilliant man. He was a traveler and a botanist, a very fine botanist. But even by my quite generous standards, he was an uninteresting poet, I think. And these songs present a woman who I think is pretty dull. I just think I wouldn't want to be loved by this woman and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to love like this woman. Her, you know, her spatial realm is her, is her room with a bed and a cradle. And I think that kind of tells us what Shamiso thought women were for. Um, I find it really hard to say to students nowadays in 2021, female students who sing this, that, you know, these are things that I want to hear from their lips. I don't actually want to hear it. Um, it's not easy for me to say it because I really love Schumann. I sort of feel I have to be flying the flag for this repertoire, but actually I would just rather listen to something else. Um, but nevertheless, I have picked something for your listeners today because I, I imagine that a lot of them still do really care for this and probably at least partially identify with the sentiments of this woman. So I have picked something for your listeners today. And you picked the fourth song, Du Ring and Mine and Finger, in which the protagonist rejoices in being popped the question. Here sung by Sarah Connolly with Eugene Asti at the piano. Wird. 
This cycle does remain popular with female singers, and yet men are reluctant to attempt it, and I believe Roderick Williams caused a bit of a stir recently with his plans to do so. Are we now more concerned with gender identity and song than they were in the 19th century? Not an era we think of being particularly progressive. Well, it's a mixed picture. There was one very, very famous and important baritone, a guy called Julius Stockhausen, who did sing songs from Frauenliebe und Leben. He didn't sing the whole cycle. He sang bits of it, but that was also completely normal in the day, regardless of whether you were a female or a male singer. The thing that struck me when I found those performances is that critics didn't really say anything about the fact that he was a man. It didn't really seem to interest anyone. They talked about the music and that was fine. And I think there was this understanding that lyric poetry somehow rises above the individual characteristics of whoever that person is. It, it humanizes us. It's not about being a man or a woman. So that's the ideal scenario. And I think that's what Roddy and um, also Matthias Gerner, who sang the cycle back in 2009, were trying to say that this is actually about human experience. So I would accept that to a degree until you get to the point where you're having a baby. And I think, well, yeah, well, I, I think I was the person who had the babies in, in, in our family. But equally, I know how important fathers are to their children. And one of the things that really bothers me about this cycle is that when that baby is born, this woman seems to forget her husband entirely and sort of kick him out of the room. And that's a sort of, it's a possessive view of motherhood, which I utterly reject as a mother myself. I think it's deeply insulting to all of the men who have ever cared for their children. But, you know, I have spoken to Roddy about this. He's a very dear colleague of mine. And he said, well, it's, it is acting. Um, singing involves a degree of acting. And so I do try to ask myself, am I being too literal about this? Am I looking at this the wrong way? And I suppose it is my limitation that I can't get over the idea that there's something quite literal about having a baby. I can assure you it is not a romantic poetry moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, you know, that's my particular hang up. I would love to believe we are coming into an era where lyric poetry can speak on its own terms beyond the strictures of gender or indeed race or any of the other things that bedevil the music that we make. 1856 saw the tragic early death of Robert Schumann and it also saw the death of one of the most popular poets for composers to set, Heinrich Heine. What was so appealing about Heine's poetry and do we know what Heine thought of the settings of his words? Heine was a very, very intelligent man. He was a very fine poet. He was also a fine professional. He was a journalist. He wrote a lot of other stuff, which is actually overlooked nowadays because his lyric poetry was a runaway success. And I think he was pragmatic enough to accept that composers would flock to those poems like a bee to the nectar, which they did. There were countless settings. He has, I think, a really wonderful understanding of the importance of brevity. A short poem can be memorized, it can be internalized, and then the rhythms by which we make it our own can emerge from us in a different way from when you're trying to engage with, you know, thousands and thousands of lines. It just doesn't work. So Heine gives people that concision, but he also gives us a lot of expressive space. There are lots of things that Heine doesn't tell us, which is what makes him, I think, a far finer poet than Chamiso, who is, you know, painfully literal in a cycle like Frauenliebe und Leben. I chose a song which I hope your listeners will love as much as I do. And this is Brahms's setting of Heine's poem Sommerabend. And, you know, we have our beautiful, tranquil summer evening landscape. I'm looking out of my window as I talk to you and seeing the, the snow heaped up. But, you know, we can imagine <laughs> that beautiful evening landscape. In the third verse of this very short three-verse poem, we just see the white arm of a nymph uh, emerging from the water. So, I mean, is she enticing? Is she dangerous? Is she us? Do we want to be her? And I love the fact that Heine doesn't answer anything. He just puts it out there and says, make it your own. He's the master of the double or the triple or the quadruple entendre. Um, endlessly rewarding. So, yeah, let's hear that one now. Oh. 
That was Sommerabend, sung by Matthias Gern and with Christoph Eschenbach at the piano. Was Heine, especially later on, slightly risque to set? As although his early lyric poetry is politically innocuous, he was later censored by authorities. And do we know where the early Rantics stood politically? Was there tacit approval of his political views by setting his lyric poetry? Heine was a poet who appealed to the young. He was politically very bold and he gave voice to lots and lots of sentiments that people held um, in the very heady years up to the revolutions of 1848. As he grew older, and I think this is something that might resonate with many of us, he became more measured and his work becomes also much harder to read. Um, he's, he's less emotive, he's more thoughtful, and as a result, most composers just stay well away from it. There are very, very few settings of later Heine, and actually the, the scholarship is also biased towards young, lyric, passionate Heine, who we feel we can grasp more easily. So in his life, he recreated himself several times and I think it sounds like a terrible cop-out to say it but just read it because it is so interesting and he he is an elusive man he was also an exile which I think is important he lived in Paris for much of his life because of the complete um, storms that he attracted around him he had an unconventional view of marriage and love as I said he had a, a you know very inflammatory political stance I think he's just a, a fascinating figure for many, many reasons beyond the fine poetry that he left us as music lovers. Well, Schumann and Mendelssohn are the two most popular composers from this period, and Robert Schumann first met Felix Mendelssohn at Clara's house in 1835. But Mendelssohn is better known for his songs without words than for his songs with them. Could you select a personal favourite from his leader output, and why do you think Mendelssohn is overlooked as a song composer? Oh, another difficult question. <laughs> Mendelssohn is very restrained. I'm not sure that restraint is very fashionable nowadays. He's very elegant. His music is very beautifully crafted, and I think it is very expressive, but not in the heart-on-sleeve way that necessarily appeals to listeners who are accustomed to, say, Richard Strauss. Um, I mean, these vast emotional landscapes that get unrolled later in the century. I think Mendelssohn is also tainted by his association with Victoriana. We think of him as a little bit fuddy-duddy, perhaps a little bit conservative. And of course, the, the tragic thing, which we must never forget is that so much of his music was erased in the era of national socialism because he was Jewish. So a whole generation, perhaps two generations of listeners, were lost at that time. And that relationship with Mendelssohn is still being rebuilt. And I feel this in myself because Mendelssohn had so little prominence in my own music education. I feel like I am still learning to value those very well-crafted forms in which he specializes. In terms of what I've picked for your listeners, he had a particular affinity with the poetry of Goethe, who was like the great granddaddy of German poetry in Mendelssohn's lifetime, and people venerated him. Um, so it is absolutely natural that Mendelssohn would be drawn to Goethe. Goethe heard Mendelssohn play when he was a child and admired him greatly. It's one of those wonderful stories. And I've chosen... For your listeners, Mendelssohn's very beautiful setting of Die Liebende Schreibt, which is a perfect love letter of longing and dreaming. Just a letter which says, I'm just hoping that you're going to say, I love you too. You know, when we, when we, when we declare our love, that is the answer that we want. And this is what this letter says. And it's crafted as an absolutely perfect sonnet. So let's hear that now. Oh 
fantastic. That was performed by Sophie Dannemann and Eugene Asti at the piano. Mendelssohn never wrote any song cycles. Is there an overemphasis on cycles these days with singers wanting to make big artistic statements both in concert and on disc and see how they measure up against the great singers of the past? Natasha, what's wrong with some wine and nibbles and some nice pleasant songs on an evening? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with nice pleasant songs. Uh, the cycles also contain nice pleasant songs, but we are, I think, we, we tend to think of everything as if they're symphonies, which is a bit of a mistake, or, you know, a really, really long sonata. I think there is a, a sense that music, art music, should be hard work. And I suppose from my own perspective, I think it can be hard work and tremendous fun at the same time. And I also think sometimes we're in the mood, you know, to sit down and really listen for 75 minutes. And sometimes we just need five minutes of perfection and beauty. And we're not very kind to ourselves as listeners. 19th century listeners had many more informal settings in which they could hear music, such as their, their homes. And for any of us who do make music at home, it's fine if you play one movement. And it's fine if you play the slow movement, because that's the movement you can play. You don't have to march through things in an orderly way and I, I love the idea of giving listeners back some ownership of that experience so that means you don't you don't have to go through the whole thing and sometimes it can just be pure pleasure I think in an ideal world it should be a bit of both right <laughs> <laughs> well Mendelssohn wasn't a member of an extraordinarily talented family his grandfather Moses was a famous writer and philosopher and his sister Fanny who wrote a considerable number of songs was possibly just as musically talented as Felix what can you recommend from her extensive collection of songs <laughs> god she was a, she's a very conflicting woman for me Fanny Mendelssohn because I would go so far as to say that she was probably more talented than her brother certainly the evidence that we have of them as children was that she was probably the more talented of the two and of course you know it's a usual story because she was woman she couldn't do this professionally etc etc let's not depress ourselves with that she didn't fight it perhaps as much as she could have and this is one of those situations where being upper middle class and wealthy was actually a huge barrier to her because if she had been um, working middle class, as we would perhaps define Clara Schumann, it would have been much, much, much more acceptable for her to roll up her sleeves, get her stuff published and get the income, or at least teach, concertize, you know, be engaged in the world of music. But because of that class background, she did withdraw. Um, she did have an amazing salon where they performed wonderful music to a very high standard, but she didn't fight for a space in the professional world. She wrote her wonderful songs. Um, I, there are still lots and lots of problems with accessing good quality scores of Fanny Mendelssohn's songs. There are editions which I think are still to come. We, I would like more recordings. As someone who loves recorded music, I would really encourage singers to get out there and explore. Um, you wanted me to recommend something of hers, didn't you? Um, but I did want to just say, I think I really, really reject the idea of a female genre in music. The men around Fanny Mendelssohn and indeed around all of the female musicians of the 19th century were very, very protective of their power their influence and their incomes. So, goodness, if you, couldn't, if you couldn't find a publisher, that was just the start of your problems. You couldn't find a venue, you couldn't find a connection, you couldn't find an orchestra. There are lots and lots of works out there by women composers that have not been published, not catalogued, not performed, not reviewed. And this is where I think history is in the making now. And that repertoire is coming out. But yeah, coming back to Fanny Mendelssohn, I love her music because I think she's perhaps a little bit less conventional than Felix Mendelssohn. She wasn't having to battle with the commercial world in the same way. So I think she takes some really wonderful risks harmonically, structurally. To me, she is giving me new discoveries every day. And I've picked, again, another Goethe setting. This is a setting of Fanny Mendelssohn's Zuleika.
I often feel there is a bit of a double standard when it comes to female composition. If they write in a masculine form like a symphony, then they're accused of composing like men, write songs and they're dismissed as frivolous. Did this attitude actually get worse over the course of the 19th century? Wow, I'm not sure how much worse it could have got, (laughs) 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 to be honest. Um, Well, the 20th century is not one to be proud of in that regard. I think it is tempting to view history as this sort of uninterrupted march of progress and things getting better. But, you know, we've seen plenty of evidence, even in the last 20 years of history, that things don't move in nice, neat trajectories towards a sort of golden horizon. People had different freedoms at different times. I think when it comes to the big genres, and I don't think of them as as masculine, but I do think of them as expensive. So symphony and opera, there were real barriers. You need a lot of people to be on your side to get an opera put on. And that's where the ranks would simply close. Um, It just wouldn't be possible for for women unless they had really outstanding connections or prestige or mountains of private cash to put those things on. So, as I said earlier, I think history is 19th century history is in the making as we speak with new recordings and new works coming out. I think of someone like the singer Pauline Viardot, who wrote operettas. And, you know, her works are really charming. They're really fun. They're very thin textured and they're very easy to put on. They're massively performable. And in this current moment in history where the idea of getting a big fat Wagnerian orchestra into a pit feels very distant to those of us who work in this world. It's tragically distant. I can see a window opening for these light operas of someone like Pauline Viardot, handful of performers, beautiful musical experience. So I suppose that's me just trying to see a silver lining on a big fat cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, famous in her day as a concert pianist, Clara Schumann's compositions are now being given much more exposure on record. Again, do you have a favourite song by Clara Schumann? And leaving the biographical details aside, how do you rate Clara Schumann as a composer? So answering your first question first, I do have a favourite song of Clara Schumann. It's been my favourite song of hers for um, several decades now. And this is a setting setting called Geheimes Flüstern, Secret Whispers. I think it's simply one of the most perfect songs ever composed from a musical standpoint. Even if one had no interest in Clara Schumann or women or whatever whatsoever, this song absolutely stands up there with the very best. Coming to your second question, which is how do I rate her as a composer? I wish it were possible for me to say that I can leave biographical details aside, but I can't. I would challenge anyone to have seven children and see how great a composer they were in the light of that. It is just, there are 24 hours in the day. She lived in a in a time when women's creativity was routinely put down. And I think what makes me the saddest is when she puts herself down in her own diaries and letters and says, well, I, I don't think I'm very bright. I don't think I can compose. And you think, good grief, how much more impressive do you have to be before you can celebrate what you're capable of? But she did not have a wonderful view of herself. And there was no one around her really saying, go for it. You are amazing. Um, so I, I'm afraid I do think of her. It sounds awful to say it, but you know, when someone dies young, we are encouraged to look at their life as a whole. 
whether it lasted three years or 30 years or three score and ten. And I suppose I re regard Clara Schumann's compositional life like that. After she was widowed, she composed almost nothing for the remaining 40 years of her life. So I suppose I see that as a kind of death. Instead of worrying, therefore, about what she didn't write, I try to celebrate what she did. And there are many, many rewards to be had there. Yes, I'm delighted that you've said that that's an unfair question because I posed it to you. And then thinking later, I thought, no, that's not fair because no one would attempt to tell the story of Beethoven without reference to his biography. So why do we do that with Clara Schumann? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Brahms and later Richard Strauss turned to song in the twilight of their careers with Brahms' Wir Ernstegesänge almost being his swan song. Here's the first of these, Den Eskehirt Den Menschen, a setting from Ecclesiastes performed by Kathleen Ferrier with John Newmark at the piano. Natasha, is there something about song and the relationship between words and music that appeals to composers as they approach the twilight of their careers? Yeah, it's a good question again. Music historians pour thousands of words into trying to understand what happens to creative people towards the ends of their lives, especially when they know that they're reaching the ends of their lives. I'm not sure we can make a special case for song. In Brahms's case, he wrote those songs in the wake of the death of Clara Schumann, who had been his faithful friend for over four years decades. But the songs are also a way of his affirming publicly how important the Bible had been to his creative life. I think there was also a sense of his own awareness that the liver cancer which had killed his father was also killing him. And it, there's something absolutely heartbreaking about how much Brahms resisted acknowledging how sick he was I and mean, he was going yellow if you look at photographs of Brahms at the end of his life he is a really horrific color but then if you look at the little postcards he writes to his friends who invited him for lunch or for dinner or whatever in Vienna he's like yes I'm gonna come over for lunch and I'm feeling fine and I suppose when I listen to those songs I see him being able to say to himself the things that he could not say because the contemplation of one's own death is is really horrific and the songs are not easy listening um, the song we've just heard you know it tells us that we we pass like the animals pass we're all of dust we return to dust and the only thing that we can rejoice in is our work that's our portion and sometimes that feels true and I think it is so courageous of Brahms to set those words, which we try and put away from us. I, I think he was so wonderful for giving voice to those ideas. Yeah, for me, there's definitely a very strong connection between these songs and Brahms's Ein Deutsches Requiem. They're both biblical, but not dogmatic. Given that the Requiem was written after the death of Brahms's mother, and these songs were written when Clara Schumann was on her deathbed or had just died, is there an insight here into Brahms' relationship with Clara Schumann? Perhaps it was much more of an alma mater relationship. I think for any of us who have had friends for a very long time, we will know that those relationships evolve. And possibly at different times in our lives, we feel a little bit in love with some of those old, old friends. And then sometimes they really get on our nerves. And Clara Schumann and Brahms had some terrific fights, some proper I'm not speaking to you for a long time fights. And then they would reconcile and they would move on. And I think that's probably the magic of really long friendships, that they can be all of those things. And it's 
probably unhelpful to try and see them in one way. Um, I don't think there was ever, ever any possibility of their having a serious romantic relationship. I think she would have thought that it was a really stupid thing to do. He was much younger, he was not established, and I think she would have just been replacing one problem, which was Robert Schumann, with another. It was much better for her to stand on her own feet, and she took excellent care of herself for the rest of her life. Well, when we were planning this show, I asked Natasha to pick something contemporary that she felt shows the influence of the Romantic movement on contemporary song composition. But quite frankly, I was a bit surprised when she picked a setting of perhaps the least romantic poet in history. Why on earth have you selected Hugh Watkins' setting of Philip Larkin's Love Songs in Age? I think it's because you put into my mind, again, Frauenliebe und Leben, which I find so terribly inadequate. And I was very, very struck by Hugh Watkins' settings of Larkin, which have been recently recorded by Carolyn Sampson and Joseph Middleton in a really stunningly beautiful recording. It stopped me in my tracks when I heard those songs. And I read the words and I thought that Larkin, yes, I know he's a grumpy old git, but he has so much profounder an insight into women's creativity, motherhood, and for all of us, women or not, the notion of getting old and the way we look back on our lives. And no matter what our lives have been like, there will be some regret. And I found that incredibly moving. So yeah, indulge me and I will read these words out for your listeners. She kept her songs. They kept so little space. The covers pleased her. One bleached from lying in a sunny place. One marked in circles by a vase of water. One mended when a tidy fit had seized her and coloured by her daughter. So they had waited till in widowhood she found them looking for something else and stood relearning how each frank submissive chord had ushered in word after sprawling hyphenated word and the unfailing sense of being young spread out like a spring-woken tree wherein that hidden freshness sung that certainty of time laid up in store as when she played them first but even more the glare of that much-mentioned brilliance love broke out to show its bright incipience sailing above still promising to solve and satisfy and set unchangeably in order. So to pile them back, to cry, was hard, without lamely admitting how it had not done so then and could not now. I was delighted that you picked that because Hull University is my alma mater, Natasha. So he, if you've ever been to Hull, you know, he was the, literally the most whole man ever. You know, <laughs> the, the perfect symbiosis of man and town with, with Philip Larkin in Hull. No wonder he's, you know, he now has a statue there in the train station. It's absolutely spot on. <laughs> Looking grumpy, I hope. In a bittersweet way, is this song an ode to the idea of romanticism that has grown up around 19th century poets and composers, but that never really existed? Has the romantic movement naturally been romanticised? Well, there's a historical answer and there's a human answer. Human beings' relationship to love has altered over the centuries and depending on what culture you're in, some people just don't understand the idea of romantic love in the same way as is normal within our society. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. But we are who we are and we live in the cultural world that we have. And so romantic love still reigns supreme, I think, within the stories we tell and the music 
music we want to listen to, the films we watch and the novels we buy. And I think the way we imagine our lives, most of us have a very vivid memory of those times of love. And I suppose that's what keeps drawing me back to art song, because I think that's one of those moments, thinking of the long span of human cultural history, where we just really look at that idea of love and we love it. We can't draw ourselves away from it. So yeah, I, I am a hopeless romantic. I know I don't sound like one in this podcast, but I am. Um, and I think I never will stop. It's now been a long time and I'm thinking, are you going to grow up anytime soon, Natasha? And it doesn't seem like it. I still go back to this music again and again. Well, finally, as we record this show, we are close to Valentine's Day. Is the world of the romantic art song still relevant to love and romance in the 21st century? Well, Paul, do you think people are going to still continue falling in love? Do you see any? I would imagine so. <laughs> I think so. I think you've just answered your question. Yes, is my, is my very firm answer. And I wish people joy with it as well. We need a bit of it at the moment. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Natasha. As the saying goes, you've helped put a song in our heart and a spring in our step. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. German Song on Stage, edited by Natasha Logas and Laura Tunbridge, an exploration of the performance of Leader in the Victorian era, is available in our Presto Box store. Have you got any exciting projects in store? Too many exciting projects <laughs> in store. I am working on a book-length history of 19th century concerts, um, which is just proving to be a complete delight. One thing after the other where you think, wow, did they really do that? Did they really get away with that? And also I'm looking a lot at 20th century female song composers, as I imagine some of your readers could guess. This is something that really fascinates me. But that's early days and uh, we'll see what the future holds. Fantastic. Well, I have to thank my long-suffering partner in production, Matt Grew, and I have to thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.